simplysafe.com. Whole home protection, protection for everybody, window, room, and door against intruders, briars, water damage, medical emergencies, and more. All monitored 24-7 by professionals ready to dispatch police. Everything you need to know. Experts choose SuperSafe Home Security. Named best home security overall by U.S. News and World Report and awarded by Popular Mechanics and more. Live professional alerts. SuperSafe bonding staff calls you when trouble is detected and stays with you until it's solved. Dispatch faster with visual verification. Adding visual verification to your monitoring plan lets us let's SuperSafe verify your alarm is real, so please and can dispatch faster. It's a lot less expensive. SuperSafe has cut out the middleman and make markup so you get more security for less with no contact. Prepared for the unexpected? Lose power, lose Wi-Fi, someone attacks the system, natural disasters, SuperSafe is ready. Protects against fires and water damage more than just intruders. SuperSafe Pro's monster gets leaks, floods, fires, and more. Keep an eye inside and out. With HD security cameras for indoors and out, see what's happening all the time. Designed to disappear for the tiny size of SuperSafe sensors to easy one-touch control means you'll never notice your security system. Detects people, ignores pets. Motion sensors use a precision human form detection algorithm. Compare your security options. Traditional home security, monitored by professionals, 36 months contract, monitoring costs, 37 to $53 a month. Hardwired needs a landline, poor rating on trust pilot. SuperSafe, the better way, monitored by professionals, no contracts, wireless, no drilling or landline required. Great rating on trust pilot, easy to set up yourself in no time. Here's how it works. Choose your security sensors. SuperSafe will walk you through exactly what your home needs and ship it to your front door in under a week. Set it up in just a few minutes. No tools needed or let one of SuperSafe's pros do it for you. Sensors guard all your rooms and entry points. If there's trouble, SuperSafe sponsoring center will call you and if needed, dispatch authorities. More reasons to choose SuperSafe. Arm, disarm from anywhere. Forgot to arm your system, need to get someone in, do it right from your phone, anytime. Almost never change your batteries. Batteries last for almost a decade in SuperSafe's entry centers. The best lifespan in the entry, battery life may vary based on use. Alexa, arm my system. Your, use your system with Alexa, Google Assistant, August Locks, Apple Watch, and more. Keep an eye on cabinets, safes, and more. Secret alerts quietly alert you if someone... Cr- Access private areas without sounding an alarm. Customized for your home. SuperSafe will customize the right system for your home's needs. Incredible range. Mini wireless security. <coughs> Mini wireless security systems struggle to cover your entire house. SuperSafe can cover large homes with ease. Custom alerts for friends and family. Set up text alerts for friends and family. Stay in the know. Duress pin, if someone forces you to disarm your system, your duress pin will secretly alert the authorities. Meet the station, view station, the brains, compares, comes with a built-in cell connection to rapidly alert. SuperSafe's emergency dispatch center, try it, test it, love it, or return it. Test SuperSafe in your home for 60 days. Your system arrives ready to work, no drilling or tools needed. If you aren't 100% satisfied, return for a full refund and SuperSafe will even pay return shipping. Purple.com. Sleep better for less. Number one in customer satisfaction. Two years in a row with mattresses online by JD Power Award. Pick the right mattress for you. The purple mattress is a dual layered comfort form. Purple Hybrid is a breathable response support. Purple Hybrid Premier is a less pressure for dreamy floating. 
The adjustable base to make it possible for work, read, and lounge your bed. Bundle up for big savings, 10% up premium bedding and cushion bundles. Kid measures ultimately place grid and softer form for best support for little sleepers. Enjoy no pressure support with free sheets and two pillows on select mothers purchase up to 247 value. Sleepy Jones and purple pajamas all day comfort with soft stretch inspired pajamas while you worry about breakfast. Some products are purple harmony pillow, double sheet cushion, purple gravity weighted blanket, purple duvet. Choose purple for no response pressure support for every. Buddy, 30 plus years and 35 pens. Comfort gel grid. Technology originally created to make wheelchairs more comfortable than their remembered beds. People love purple, period. Positively, P-A-W-S-tively. Comfy even for your fur baby. Good morning. Hope you had a good week. Today's true crime story is Killer Clown, John Wayne Gacy, Part 1. John Wayne Gacy, March 17, 1942 to May 10, 1994, was an American serial killer who raped, tortured, and murdered at least 33 teenage boys and young men between 1972 and 1978 in Cook County, Illinois, as part of metropolitan Chicago. All of Gacy's known murders were committed inside his Norwood Park ranch house. His victims were typically induced to his address by former or de- by force or deception, and all except one of the victims were murdered e- by either asphyxiation or strangulation with a makeshift garage as his first sister was stabbed to death. Gacy buried 26 visits in the crawl space of his home. Three other victims were buried elsewhere on his property, while the bodies of the last four unknown victims were discarded in the De Plain River. Convicted of 33 murders, Gacy was sentenced to death on March 13, 1980. For 12 of those murders, he spent 14 years on death row before he was executed by lethal ejection at Statesville Correctional Center on May 10, 1994. Gacy became known as the Killer Clown because of his charitable services at the fundraiser advance parades and Children's parties where he dressed as Poker the Clown or Patches the Clown, characters that he had created. Early Life John Wayne Gacy was born in Chicago, Illinois on March 17, 1942, the second child and only son of three children, born to John Stanley Gacy, June 20, 1900 to December 25, 1969, an auto repair machinist and World War I veteran, and his wife, Marion Elaine Robinson, May 4, 1908, December 7, 1989. A homemaker, Gacy was a polished and East Polish and Danish ancestry. His paternal grandparents were who spelled the name, the family name as Gatza or Gaka, G-A-T-Z-A or G-A-C-A, had immigrated to the United States from Poland, then part of Germany. As a child, Gacy was overweight and and not Gacy was overweight and not athletic. He was close to his two sisters and mother, but endured a difficult relationship with his father, an alcoholic who physically who was physically abusive to his wife and children. Throughout his childhood, Gacy strove to make his stern father proud of him, but seldom received his approval. This friction was constant throughout his childhood and adolescence. One of Gacy's earliest childhood memories was of his father beating him with a leather belt at the age of four for accidentally disarranging car engine components that his father had assembled. One, on another occasion, his father struck him across the head with a broomstick, rendering him unconscious. His father really belittled him and often compared him unfavorably with his sisters, disdainfully accusing him of being dumb and stupid. Gacy, while regularly commenting that he was never good enough in his father's eyes, always vehemently denied ever hating his father in interviews of, after his arrest. When he was six years old, Gacy stole a toy truck from the neighborhood store. His mother made a walk back to the store, returned the toy, and apologized to the owners. His mother informed his father, who beat Gacy with a belt as punishment. 
After this incident, Gacy's mother attempted to shield son from his father's verbal and physical abuse, yet this only succeeded in Gacy earning accusations that he was a sissy and a mama's boy who would probably grow up queer. In 1949, Gacy's father was informed that his son and another boy had been caught sexually fondling, fondling a young girl. Gacy's father whipped him with a razor strap as punishment. That the same year, Gacy himself was molested by a family friend, uncontracted who would take Gacy for rides in his truck and then fondle him. Gacy never told his father about these incidents, afraid that his father would blame him. Because of a heart condition, Gacy was ordered to avoid all sports at school. An average student with few friends, he was occasionally he was an occasional target for bullying by neighborhood children and classmates. He was known to assist the school truancy officer and volunteer to run for errands for teachers and neighbors. During the fourth grade, Gacy began to experience blackouts. He was occasionally hospitalized because of these seizures, and also in 1957 for a burst appendix. Gacy lady later. Estimated that between the ages of 14 and 18, he had spent almost a year in the hospital for these episodes and attributed the decline of his grades to his missing school. His father suspected the episodes were an effort to gain sympathy and attention and openly accused his son of faking the condition as the boy lay in a hospital bed. Although his mother says a few close friends never doubted his illness, Gacy's mental condition was never conclusively diagnosed. One of Gacy's friends, a high school, recalled... At high school, recalled several instances in which his father ridiculed a beat his son with prov- without provocation. On one occasion in 1957, the same friend witnessed an incident Gace- at the Gacy house in which Gacy's father began shouting at his son for no reason, then began hitting him. Gacy's mother attempted to intervene. The friend recalled that Gacy simply put up his hands to defend himself, adding that he never struck his father back during these physical altercations. In 1960, at the age of 18, Gacy became involved in politics, where he has an assistant. Precinct candidate for Democratic Party candidate in his neighborhood. This decision earned more criticism from his father, who accused his son of being a patsy. Gacy later speculated the decision may have been an attempt to seek the assistance from others that he never received from his father. The same year, Gacy became a Democrat candidate. Democratic candidate. His father bought him a car with the title of the vehicle being in his father's name until Gacy had completed the monthly pay- repayments. These repayments took several years to complete. His father would confiscate the keys to the vehicle if Gacy did not do as his father said. On one occasion in 1960, Gacy bought an extra set of keys after his father confiscated the original set. In response, his father removed the distributor cap from the vehicle, withholding the com- component for three days. Gacy recalled that as a result of this incident, he felt totally sick, drained. When his father replaced the distributor cap, Gacy left the family home and drove to Las Vegas, Nevada, where he found work within the ambulance service for his travel to work as an attendant at the Palm Mortuary. He worked in his role for three months before returning to Chicago. In his role as a mortuary attendant, Gacy slept on a cot behind the embalming room. In this role, he observed morticians embalming dead bodies, later confessed that on one evening while alone, he had clambered into uh, the coffin of a deceased teenage male, embracing and caressing the body before experiencing a sense of shock. This prompted Gacy to call his mother the next night, asked whether his father would allow him to return home. His father agreed on this, and on the same day, Gacy drove back to live with his family in Chicago. Upon his return, despite the fact that he had failed to graduate from high school, Gacy successfully enrolled in the Northwestern Business College, from which he graduated in 1963. Gacy subsequently took a management training position with the Nunn Bush Shoe Company. In 1964, the shoe company transferred Gacy to Springfield to work as a salesman. He was eventually promoted to manager of his department in March of that year. He became engaged in Maryland. Myers, a co-worker in the department he managed after a nine-month courtship, the couple married in September 1964. Marlon's 
Father subsequently purchased three Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurants in Waterloo, Iowa, and Gacy has why moved to Waterloo so he could manage restaurants with, with the understanding that they would move to Maryland's home, which was vacated for the couple. During his courtship with Maryland, Gacy joined the local JCs and became a tireless worker for the organization, being named key man for the organization in April 1964. <coughs> <coughs> that same year, Gacy had a second homosexual experience. According to Gacy, he acquiesced to this incident after one of his colleagues in the Springfield JCs replied him with drinks, invited him to spend the evening upon the sofa. The colleague then performed oral sex upon him while he was drunk. By 1969, Gacy had risen to the position of vice president of the Springfield JCs. The same year, he was named as the third most outstanding JC within the state of Illinois. Waterloo, Iowa. In 1966, Gary Gacy accepted an offer from his father-in-law to manage three KFC restaurants in Waterloo. The offer was lucrative. Gacy will receive $15,000 per year, the equivalent of $115,513 as of 2020, plus a share of profits earned via the restaurants. Following his obligatory completion of a managerial course, Gacy relocated to Waterloo with his wife later that year. In Waterloo, Gacy joined the local chapter of the JCs in regular offering ex- extended hours to the organization in addition to the 12- and 14-hour days he worked managing three restaurants. Although considered ambitious and something of a braggart by his colleagues in the JCs, he was highly regarded as a worker on several fundraising projects. In 1967, he was named outstanding vice president of the Waterloo JCs. At JCs meetings, Gacy often provided free fried chicken to his colleagues and assisted upon being given the name Colonel that same year. Gacy served on the board directors of the, for the Waterloo JCs. Gacy's wife gave birth to two children. A son named Michael was born in February 1966, followed by a daughter named Christine in March 1967. Gacy himself later described his, this period of his life as perfect, adding that he finally earned the long sought approval of his father. On one occasion in July 1966, Gacy's parents paid a visit to Hawaii during Iowa, during which his father apologized privately to him for the physical and emotional abuse he had inflicted on throughout his childhood, before proudly informing his son, I was wrong about you. However, there was an unsimilar side of J.C. life in Waterloo that involved wife-swapping, prostitution, pornography, and drug use. Gacy was deeply involved in many of these activities and regularly cheated on his wife with local prostitutes. He was also known to have opened a club in his basement where he allowed his employees to drink alcohol and play pool. Although Jake Gacy employed teenagers of both sexes at his restaurants, he associated only with his young male employees. Many were given alcohol before Gacy made sexual advances toward them, which, with whoever above, he would claim were jokes or a test of morals. First offenses. In August 1967, Gacy committed his first known sexual assault upon a teenage boy. The victim was a 15-year-old named Donald Voorhees, the son of a fellow J.C. Gacy lured Voorhees to his house with the promise of showing him pornography, porno, pornographic films. Gacy plied Voorhees with alcohol, persuaded the youth to perform oral sex upon him. Over the following months, several other youths were sexually abused in a similar manner, including one who Gacy encouraged to have sex with his, known, with his own wife before blackmailing the youth into performing oral sex upon him. Gacy tricked several teenagers into believing he was commissioned with conducting homosexual ex experiments in the interest of scientific research, for which each was paid up to $50. In March 1968, Glory reported to his father that Gacy had sexually assaulted him. Voorhees senior immediately informed the police that Gacy was arrested and subsequently charged with oral sodomy in relation to Voorhees and attempted assault of a 16-year-old named Edward Lynch. 
Gacy Vahimi denied the charges and demanded to take a polygraph test. This request was granted, although the results indicate Gacy was nervous when he denied any wrongdoing in relation to either Voorhees or Lynch. Gacy publicly denied any wrongdoing and insisted the charges against him were po- politically motivated. Voorhees Sr. had opposed Gacy's nomination for appointment as president of Iowa J.C. See, several de- fellow JCs found Gacy's story credible and relative support. However, on May 10, 1968, Gacy was indicted on the sodomy charge. The most striking aspect of the test results is the patient's total denial of responsibility for everything that's happened to him. He can produce an alibi for everything. He presents himself as a victim of circumstances and blames other people who are out of- to get him. The patient attempts to assure a sympathetic response by depicting himself as being at the mercy of a hostile environment. Section of the report due to Gacy's 19th psychiatric evaluation. On August 30th, 1968, Gacy was one of his employees, 18-year-old named Russell Schroeder, to physically assault Warriors in an effort to discourage the boy from testifying against him at the upcoming trial. Schroeder agreed to lure Warriors to a secluded spot, spray mace in his face, and beat him. Gacy promised to pay Schroeder $300 to follow through on the plot. In early September, Schroeder lured Warriors to an isolated county park, sprayed mace, supplied by Gacy to the used ice, and then beat him, all the while shouting that he was not to testify against Gacy at his upcoming trial. Voorhees managed to escape and immediately reported the assault to the police, identifying Schroeder as his attacker. Schroeder was just the following day, despite initially denying any involvement, he soon confessed to having assaulted Voorhees, indicating that he had done so at Gacy's request. Gacy was requested an additional charge in relation to prior Schroeder to assault and intimidate Voorhees. On September 12th, Gacy was ordered to undergo a psychiatric evaluation at the Psychiatric Hospital of the State University of Iowa. Two doctors had examined Gacy over a period of 17 days before concluding he had an antisocial personality disorder, a disorder which cor- incorporates constructs such as sociopathy and psychopathy, was unlikely to benefit from any therapy or medical treatment, and that his behavior pattern was likely to bring him into repeated conflict with society. The doctors also concluded that he was mentally competent to stand trial. Conviction and imprisonment. Upon advice by the attorney, Gacy entered a plea of guilty to one count of sodomy in relation to the charges that he filed against him by Donald Voorhees. He pleaded not guilty to other charges lodged against him by other youths at a former arraignment held on November 7, 1968. Before the judge, Gacy said that he had Voorhees, that he and Voorhees indeed engaged in sexual relations, and he insisted Voorhees has offered his sexual advances to him and that he acted out of curiosity. The story was not believed, despite his lawyer's recommendations for probation. Gary was convicted of sodomy on December 3, 1968, and sentenced to 10 years at the Anamosa State Penitentiary. On that day, Gary was convicted and sentenced his wife, petitioned for divorce, requesting possession of the couple's home, property, and sole custody of their children. And two and subsequent alimony payments. The court ruled in her favor. The divorce was finalized September 18, 1969. Casey never saw his wife, his first wife, or children again. During his incarceration in the Anamosa State Penitentiary, Gacy rapidly acquired a reputation as a model prisoner. Within months of his arrival, he had risen to the position of head cook. He also joined the inmate JC chapter and increased their membership figure from 50 to 650 in the span of less than 18 months. He is also known to have both secured an increase in the inmates' daily pay in the prison mess hall and to have supervised several projects to improve conditions for inmates at the prison. On one occasion, Gacy oversaw the installation of a miniature golf course in the prison's recreation yard. In June 1969, Gacy first applied to the State of Iowa Board of Parole for early release. This this application was denied in preparation for a second scheduled parole hearing. In May 1970, Gacy completed 16 high school courses for which he obtained his diploma in November 1969. On Christmas Day 
1969, Casey's father died from cirrhosis of the liver. Casey was told was not told that his father died until two days after his death. When he heard the news, Casey was said to have collapsed to the floor, sobbing uncontrollably, and not and had to be supported by prison staff. Casey requested a supervised compassionate leave from prison to attend his father's funeral in Chicago, but his request was denied. Pro. Casey is granted parole within 12 months probation on June 18, 1970, after serving 18 months of his 10-year sentence. Two of the conditions of his probation were for Gacy to reclose to Chicago to live with his mother and to observe a 10 p.m. curfew with the Iowa Board of Parole receiving regular updates as to his progress. Upon his release, Gacy told a friend and fellow J.C. named Clarence Lane, who picked him up from the prison upon release and had remained steadfast in his belief that, of Gacy's innocence that he would never go back to jail and that he intended to reestablish him in Waterloo. However, within 24 hours of his release, Gary, of his release, Gary relocated to Chicago to live with his mother. He arrived in Chicago on June 19th and shortly thereafter obtained a job as a shorter cook at a, in a restaurant. On February 12, 1971, Gacy was charged with sexual assaulting a teenage boy. The youth claimed that Gacy had lured him to his car at Chicago's Greyhound bus terminal and drive, driven him home to his home where he had attempted to force the youth into sex. This complaint was subsequently dismissed when the youth finally failed to appear in court. The Iowa Board of Parole did not learn of this incident, which violated the conditions of his parole, and eight months later, in October 1971, Gary's parole ended. The following months, Records of Gary's previous criminal convictions in Iowa were subsequently sealed. The financial assistance from his mother, Gacy, brought, bought a house in Norwood Park Township, an unincorporated area of Cook County. The address 1812-13 West Somerdale Avenue is where he resided until his arrest in December 1978 and where all his known murders were committed in August 1971. Shortly after Gacy and his mother moved into the house, he became engaged to Carol Hoff of divorcee with two young daughters. Hoff, whom he had briefly dated in high school, had been a friend of his younger sister. His fiancée moved into his home soon after the couple announced their engagement. Gary's, Gacy's mother subsequently moved out of the house shortly before his wedding, which was held on July 1st, 1972. One week before Gacy's wedding, on June 22nd, he was arrested and charged with aggra aggravated battery and luckless conduct. The arrest was in response to a complaint filed by a youth named Jackie D., who informed police that Gacy impersonated a police officer, had flashed the sheriff's badge, lured him into his car, and forced him to perform oral sex. These charges were later dropped after the complaint attempted to blackmail Gacy into paying money to, in exchange for dropping the charges. Businessman and community volunteer. Following Gacy's marriage to Carol Hoff, his new wife was stepped in booties to the Somerdale Avenue house. Gacy had quit his job as a cook and started his own construction business, PDM Contractors. PDM being the initials for painting, decorating, and maintenance. The business initially took, undertook minor repair work, such as sign writing, pouring concrete, and redecorating, but led expenses to include projects such as interior design, remodeling, installation, assembly, and landscaping. By 1978, the gross of PDM's annual turnover was over 200000 Dollars. In 1973, Gacy and a teenage employee of PDM contractors traveled to Florida to view property Gacy had purchased. On the first night in Florida, Gacy raped the youth in a hotel room. As a result, this youth refused to stay in the same hotel room as Gacy and instead slept on the beach. Upon returning to Chicago, this employee drove to Gacy's house as he was in his yard and beat him. Gacy's mother-in-law stopped the youth from further attacking Gacy and he drove away. Gacy explained to his wife that the attack happened because he had refused to Pay the youth for poor quality work. 
His name is Noah Parker said Gator Gregarious and helpful. He was active in his local community and hosted annual summer parties beginning in 1974. He also became active in Democratic Party politics and issued offering the labor service of his PDM employees free of charge. Gacy was awarded for his community service by being appointed to serve upon the Norwood Park Township Street Lighting Committee. He simply earned the title of a precinct captain. In 1975, Gacy was appointed director of Chicago's annual Polish Constitution Day Parade. He supervised the annual event from 1975 until 1978. Through his work with the parade, Gacy met and was photographed with First Lady Rosalind Carter on May 6, 1978. Through his fellowship in a local moose club, Gacy became aware of a jolly joker, Clown Club, whose members regularly performed at fundraising events and parades, in addition to voluntarily entertaining hospitalized children. In, in late 1975, Gacy joined the Jolly Jokers and created his own performance characters, Pogo the Clown and Patches the Clown. Gacy designed his own costume and titles of how to apply clown makeup, although some professional clowns noted the sharp corners Gacy painted as the, around the edge of his mouth are contrary to the rounded borders that professionals normally employ, so as not to scare children. Gacy is known to have performed as Pogo or Patches at numerous local parties. Democratic Party functions, charitable events, and at children's hospitals. He is also known to have arrived dressed as in a, his clowning garb at a favorite drinking venue named the Good Luck Lounge. On several occasions, with the expression, he had performed at a charitable event and was stopping for a social drink before heading home. It, by 1975, Gacy had told his wife that he had, that he was bisexual. After the couple had sex on Mother's Day that year, he informed her. This would be the last time they would ever have sex. He began spending most years away from home, only to return in the early hours of the morning with the excuse he had been working late. His wife observed Gacy bringing a teenage boy into his garage and also found gay pornography and men's balls and identification inside the house. She, when, she, when she once confronted Gacy about the, who these guys belonged to, he angrily informed her the property was none of her business. They divorced by mutual consent in March 1976. Murders. The murder of Timothy McCoy. On January 2nd, 1972, Gacy picked up 16-year-old Timothy Jack McCoy from Chicago's Greyhound Bus Terminal. Gacy took McCoy, who was driving from Michigan to Omaha on a sightseeing tour of Chicago and then drove him to his home with the promise that he could spend the night and be driven back to the station in time to catch his bus. According to Gacy's later account of the morning, he awoke the following morning to find McCoy standing at his bedroom door with a kitchen knife. Gacy leaped from his bed and McCoy raised both arms and adjusted their surrender, tilting the knife upwards and accidentally cutting Gacy's forearm. Gacy had a scar on his arm to support this account. He then twisted the knife from McCoy's wrist, bandaged his head against his, his bedroom wall, kicked him against his wardrobe, and walked towards him. McCoy then kicked him in the stomach and Gacy grabbed the youth, wrestled him to the floor, then stabbed him repeatedly in the chest and straddled him with his body. Gacy claimed he then went to his kitchen and saw an open carton of eggs and a slab of unsliced basin on his kitchen table. McCoy had also set the table too. He had walked into Gacy's room to wake him while asked him how to carry the kitchen knife in his hand. Gacy didn't bury McCoy in his cross basin and later recovered the used grave with a layer of concrete. In an interview under, after his arrest, Gacy stated that immediately after killing McCoy, he felt totally drained yet noted that he had experienced a mind-numbing orgasm as he killed the youth. He added, that was that's when I realized that death was the ultimate thrill. Second known victim. Gacy later stated that the second time he committed the murder was around January 1934. The victim was believed to have been an unidentified teenage youth with a medium brown hair, estimated to be aged between 14 and 18, whom Gacy strangled before stowing the youth's body in his closet prior to burial. Gacy later stated that fluid leaked out of his, this youth's mouth and nose as he was stored in his closet, staining his carpet as a result of this experience. Gacy later stated he regularly stuffed cloth rags over the victim's 
won't underwent to the most of occurrence of this incident. This particular unidentified victim was buried about 15 feet, 4.6 meters, from the barbecue in Gacy's backyard. The handcuff trick and rope trick. By 1975, Gacy's business was expanding rapidly. His own, by his own later admission, he began working 12 to 16-hour days to fulfill agreed commitments upon an increasing number of Contract Gacy freely admitted that 1975 was also the year in which he began to increase the frequency of his schedules for sex with young males. He often referred to these jobs as his cruising. Much of the labor force of PDM contracts consists of high school students and young men. One of these youths was a fifth-year-old named Anthony Antonucci, whom Gacy had hired in May 1975. In July 1975, Gacy arrived at the youth's home while the youth was alone, having injured his his foot with alcohol wrestled him to the floor and cuffed Antonucci's hands behind his back. The cuff upon Antonucci's right wrist was loose. Antonucci freed his arm from the handcuff after Gacy left the room. When Gacy returned, Antonucci, a member of his high school wrestling team, pounced upon him. The youth wrestled Gacy to the floor, obtained possession of the handcuff key, and cuffed Gacy's head behind his back. Gacy screamed threats and then calmed down and promised to leave it. Antonucci removed the handcuffs. The youth agreed, and Gacy left the house. Antonucci later recalled that Gacy had told him as he lay on the floor, Not only are you the only one who got out of the cuffs, you got them on me. One week after the attempted assault on Antonucci on July 31st, 1995, another of Gacy's employees, 18-year-old John Berkovich, Butkovich, appeared the day before his appearance. Butkovich had threatened Gacy over two weeks of standing back pay. Gacy later admitted to luring Butkovich to his home while his wife and stepchildren were visiting his sister in Arkansas ostensibly to settle the issue of Butkovich's overdue wages. Gary Conley used into allowing his wrist to be cut behind his back, at which point Gacy strangled him to death and buried his body under the concrete floor of his garage. Gacy later came admitted to having sat at the kid's chest for a while before killing him. Buckovich Don Dodgedan was found abandoned in a pocket with a used ball inside and the keys still in the ignition. Buckovich followed called Gacy, who claimed he was happy to help search for the youth, but was sorry Buckovich had run away. Gacy was questioned about Buckovich. Suspirants admitted the youth had two friends had arrived at his apartment demanding Buckovich overdue payment, pay, but claimed all three youths had left after a compromise had been reached. Over the following three years, Buckovich's parents called police more than 100 times, urging them to investigate Gacy further. Deceiving youths into donning handcuffs became Gacy's typical modus operandi in subduing his victims. After applying a youth of drinks, drugs, or generally Gaining his trust, Gacy would produce a pair of handcuffs occasionally as part of a clowning routine, which he persuaded his intended victim into donning with his victim. Manacled and unable to free himself, Gacy then made a statement to the effect of, the trick is you have to have the key before proceeding to rape and torture his captive. He finished with the rope trick, placing a rope over his victim's neck and tying a makeshift tourniquet until the victim was strangled to death. Stay tuned to part two of Clown Killer John Wayne Gacy.